Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is Kaylee, who we learned from last episode. She was delving into some short stories on sci-fi and her love of robotic animals like Tamagotchis and Gigapets. Hey Kaylee, uh, have you got your uh, Tamagotchi uh, ready yet? No, you know, actually reading those stories was both really exciting for me, but a little triggering because my Tamagotchi died all the time. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm ready to commit to another digital pet. Uh, did you have those when you were growing up? You know, I worked at Toys R Us in like the late 90s. And I remember the year that it came out, it was the hottest thing. And I worked in the electronics department. And it was one of those things where people were banging down the door trying to get the Tamagotchis. And I was like, I felt like I had so much power. I was like 17 years old, like opening the box of Tamagotchis. Like, no, I'm not going to sell to you weird 40-year-old man buying 10 of them. It would probably be a little weird for you to go and buy 10 of them now at this age. Someone would have questions. And speaking of lots of questions, we have lots of questions today for our guest. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Krishana Sankar. And Krishana is a research scientist in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto, whose doctoral research was actually focused on studying diabetes to better understand potential treatments. Krishana is also the founder of the group Grad Write Slack that supports graduate students in their academic writing. Hi, Krishana. Welcome to Nerdin' About. Hi, Kaylee. Hi, Michael. Well, Space Michael. <laughs> nice to be here. <laughs> it's really lovely uh, that you were able to join us. So today we're going to be talking about some of your doctoral work. And in anticipation of this episode, I was doing a little bit of reading about diabetes. And I was actually really surprised to find that I think it was in 2017, over 7% of Canadians over the age of 12 had been diagnosed with diabetes. Is Canada higher up on the scale for having diabetes in comparison to other countries? So that's actually a pretty high rate. I would say it's comparable to other countries that are not low-income countries. But typically speaking, we do know in Canada we have about 11 million people with diabetes, the different types of diabetes. So 7.3% is not super bad, but it's not great either. So Dr. Sankar, if you could um, maybe bring it back to help explain to dummies like me, what is diabetes? What causes it? And probably the more important question, is it pronounced diabetes or diabetes? Okay, I think I want to start with your third question. <laughs> so um, as far as I know, it's pronounced diabetes and not diabetes, although I have heard some people pronounce it that way. But no, it's, it's pronounced diabetes. And diabetes is a metabolic syndrome that occurs when our body is unable to either make or use a hormone called insulin. And because of that, that means that we're unable to use sugar from our foods when we eat it. And not only that, is when the sugar gets into our blood, typically the insulin or the hormone insulin usually removes it from our blood and is able to store it in the different organs where we use it for energy. But if the sugar is stayed in our blood and it's not removed and put into different organs, what tends to happen is we cause damage to the different organs in our body as well as in our blood vessels. And that typically leads to other issues down the road. And what kind of issues does it lead to? What, what parts of the body does it affect the most? So um, interestingly enough, and I think this is actually an important point that a lot of people are not aware of, but some of the secondary complications of diabetes tend to be things like heart disease and stroke as well as neuropathy, so having your nerves die. So people tend to feel tingling or numbness in their extremities, and that can eventually lead to amputation. Also blindness. 
and kidney kidney damage. So those are some of the main secondary complications that people with diabetes can develop. And do those complications take a, a long time to develop? Are we talking 20 years to develop or 10 years? I'm sure it, it varies, of course, with severity, but is, is that sort of a long-term complication issue? Exactly. So yes, those are long-term complications. So they tend to come around after having the disease for quite a number of years, especially depending on when you've been diagnosed. So some people, if they're diagnosed younger, they're able to then better maintain and manage their diabetes and hopefully um, able to prevent some of the longer-term complications. But then there are other people who tend to get diagnosed later in life and may have had the disease for a little while. And so their complications would seem to come on a lot sooner than if they were diagnosed earlier. So it sounds like the if you have diabetes, it's a pretty severe condition. But how long have we known about it? Is this a relatively new disease for humanity? Or is it just we just didn't know about it? And lots of people just suffered not knowing why? No, this this condition has been around for a really long time. Even one of the particular symptoms of frequent urination was um, given a name by one of the Greek philosophers back in back in the day. So it's been around for a long time, but it's only very recently been treatable. And when I say that, I, I'm talking about in the 1920s. Typically, people who had diabetes prior to 1920 would die uh, just a few months or sometimes just a few weeks after being diagnosed with the disease. So it wasn't until 1920, of course, when it was Dr. Frederick Banting and Charles Best who both discovered insulin, and particularly for type people with type 1 diabetes. So they were now able to use insulin in order to prolong their life. So, Krishana, how do we treat diabetes? So there are different ways to treat diabetes, and one of the most popular or important ways of treating it specifically for type 1 diabetes, because there are different types of diabetes, is the use of insulin. So whether that be insulin injections or insulin pumps, um, and that's because, of course, in diabetes, um, it is because of the lack of insulin or the inability of the body to use insulin that people develop the disease. So having insulin as a either an injection or a pump is a main treatment for diabetes. There's also another treatment for diabetes called islet transplantation. And so that's where my work comes in. So islet transplantation started uh, many years ago in the 1960s, I believe, by Paul Lacey. And it was then picked up in Edmonton in the 1980s by a lab there. And so the first protocol that was done there was actually called the Edmonton Protocol. And so that is another treatment for uh, diabetes, the islet transplantation. I'm from Edmonton, and this whole time I thought our only claim to fame was Wayne Gretzky, but it's very exciting to hear that we have, <laughs> we have this other amazing protocol. So what are, what are islets? How are they involved? Why do we need to transplant them? What does that do for us? Well, that's a great question. So, and I'm really happy you asked it because many people don't know what islets are. So islets of Langerhans, they are tiny mini organs that are found within our pancreas, and our pancreas usually holds about one to three million of these tiny balls of cells. So they're super small. Whoa. Yeah, they're about, um, and on average, they're like 200 microns in size, which means you need a microscope to see detail, but you can actually see them with your naked eye. It kind of looks like a speck of dust. And so these, these mini organs inside the pancreas are the ones that are actually responsible for making and producing and secreting insulin. 
And so when the certain cells in that islet dies, that's what causes the lack of insulin and then eventually development of diabetes. Is there anything you can do to keep them from dying? So actually, one of the important parts of islet transplantation is to ensure that there is survival of these islets for the transplantation process. And that has been one of the limiting factors of the procedure for many years, that as well as the amount of islets that are are needed for the transplantation itself. And so my research actually looks at um, trying to get these islets of Langerhans to stay alive longer for transplantation. So typically what happens in the procedure for islet transplantation is the islets are removed from a cadaver's pancreas. So um, they're cut off from their blood supply. Then we take them, we clean them up in a, in a procedure. And then we take these islets and then transplant them into someone else. So someone who has type 1 diabetes, for example. Now, during that whole process with the removing of the blood vessels and making sure the islets are nice and clean and ready to be transplanted, some of the cells within the islets start to die. And then they undergo something called hypoxia or basically they experience something called low oxygen that also perpetuates death within the islets. And so my research comes in because I'm trying to actually keep these islets alive longer and help them be more viable for this transplantation procedure. And I use different methods and techniques for that where I combine biology and engineering to sort of mimic um, a flow within these islets. So typically when the islets are in our bodies, they receive blood flow. And the blood flow itself is a signal for survival, but they also get nutrients and they're also able to remove uh, waste. And so that's what I mimic on the bench top or, or in vitro is what we call it when, once it's outside of the body. So you're essentially trying to m- mimic as if it was still in a live person. Exactly. So this would be, like, let's say you have indicated that you're an organ donor. This might be something that would happen with those organs? Exactly. So if if someone's an organ donor, what would happen is if someone requires an islet transplantation, then the organ donor's pancreas gets removed. And then they undergo, it undergoes a procedure where we remove those islets from the pancreas. Like I said, like I mentioned before, we clean them up. And then they're actually shipped out to the person that requires the islets for transplantation. And then usually that's done as quickly as possible, of course, but then also at the same time, we want to make sure that the cells that we're, the other person or the recipient is receiving are ready and compatible for their body and they don't react adversely to these new cells. And I, you mentioned that you want to, of course, do this as quickly as possible. What, what's the kind of the time frame that you would have from removal from one person to getting it to the, the person who needs them? So typically, the whole process might take just a couple of days, perhaps one to three days. And that's because it depends on how soon and how severe the, the whole procedure is with the person requiring the islets, but then also to ensure Once again, then the islets are safe to be used for transplantation. And to use that, we typically need to keep it and evaluate the islets, make sure that they're alive and and they're properly functioning before we actually transplant it into someone else. So that's actually a question that I had that you just led really nicely into is how do you how do you determine if these are still living versus not living? Do you have to actually watch them go through these biological processes or is there a way to tag them so that you can observe them more easily? 
So for these islets, there, there are a few different tests that you can do to figure out if they're still viable. And so one of the main tests is to ensure that they're still secreting insulin, because that's the main function of the islet that we want when we transplant them. And so it's essentially to stimulate them with uh, sugar or glucose and at different levels and to then measure the amount of insulin they're secreting and to determine are they secreting enough insulin and are they secreting the insulin at the right times because all of that is important. So that is one measure of the function of the islet, but then also you want to make sure that the islets are still viable. So there are also tests to make sure that the cells are still living versus if the cells are dead. So some of those, uh, for example, are either called caspase 3, so that's a protein you would tag the islets for, or something else called tunnel staining, which is cool as well because it, it pretty much tags DNA that are uh, cut off. So if it's if it fluoresces for the color, then you know that the islets are dead. So you were talking about you know this process of having the cells, it's really important that we understand if we can keep them alive longer so that they're more viable for transplantation. And you go through these steps of, okay, so give the, giving them these nutrients, how long can they survive? What, what have you found? How, how helpful is this? Have you, have you been able to keep them in the lab uh, alive longer? Yeah, so actually, um, my results were quite um, quite exciting. So typically, when you remove the islets from the blood supply, especially the blood vessels, they start to die quite quickly. And after 24 um, hours, you see about 50% less blood vessels than when you first took them out of the body. And then they start to, of course, they continue dying over time. And by day four, you have no blood vessels in the islet. So with my treatments, when I've combined it with a bioengineering uh, method called a microfluidic device, which is essentially a tiny device that's the size of a, a toonie. Um, and imagine putting like tiny, tiny cells within a device that's the size of a toonie and then stimulating them with some flow and some media. I've managed to keep those blood vessels around for a longer period of time than if they were typically just sitting in a dish. So that's classically how they're treated. They're classically just put in a dish with this media without any flow. But when I put it under the conditions of my experiment with flow and the media, we actually see them sticking around for a longer period of time. That's very cool. So we could imagine a future in which someone is extracting these cells from one person and then putting them in a Dr. Sankar medium <laughs> with flow and sending them off to the next person for implantation. That, that would be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to start thinking of some marketing, a really good catchy name. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you founded something called the hashtag 150 minute campaign. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so the 150 minute campaign came about because of my love for exercise and then combining my passions in general. So exercise and science and my science happens to be in diabetes research. And so when trying to figure out how to do that, I actually came across for the American Heart Association, and which is also now adopted by the Diabetes Canada organization, is that there was research to show that 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise per week helps to keep us healthy. And so I thought this would be a great way to get people active and get them involved, as well as to sort of teach people a bit about diabetes that they may not know and help to dispel some of the myths around it. So in 2017, um, in the month of November, which happens to be Diabetes Awareness Month globally, 
I decided to launch this campaign. And so I did so on Instagram and I told people to snap a picture or a video of them being active and then hashtag 150 minutes. And so it took off and it was quite fun. Um, and during that time, what I would do is I would set up different quizzes on Instagram or on social media about diabetes and asking people questions about uh, dispelling myths around diabetes. And then I would go on to explain what the answers are. So yeah, it, it all came about because of my love for exercise and, and combining that with my research. So if you were to take us through some of those most common myths, what would some of them be? So some of them would be um, people thinking that only eating too much sugar causes diabetes. So that one is a big myth. And that's because it diabetes is so complex and complicated that it's not just about the amount of sugar that we intake. And for example, type 2 diabetes is actually actually has a huge link to genetics. So if you have a father, for example, so you tends to be in, you know, males over the age of 40, um, and having a certain, you know, BMI, then they tend to have a higher risk for diabetes. And if you have people in your family with diabetes, then you also have a higher risk of getting diabetes. So there's a large genetic component to this, as well as, of course, environment and nurture versus nature, you know, your um, exercising and your lifestyle and, and the food that you eat. Um, and, and just not sugar, but also bad fats as well. So those all contribute to getting diabetes. All right, let's get to some nerd herd questions. Why is the Skype? What's at the center of a black hole? Does anyone have free will? It's like carbon it's based. The fastest thing on earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. We have a question from Janica who asks whether or not type 1 diabetics can be vegetarian. Oh, that's an interesting question. So I actually do know a few people who have type 1 diabetes and they are vegetarian. Um, and they, they live quite healthy um, lives. But of course, regardless of whatever type of diet someone t wants to have, especially if, they're, if they have a chronic disease, it's always important to get input and feedback from your physician. So that would be one thing I would just want people to take away. But yes, I do know people with type 1 diabetes who are vegetarian. And also just to follow up on another dumb question, what is the difference between the different types of diabetes? So a type 1 diabetic and a type 2 and type 3 maybe? Yeah, so that's not a dumb question at all. It's a really good question. So there are actually more than three types of diabetes, but typically we tend to speak about the three main types of diabetes because the others are more newly formed. But the three main types, well, so for type 1, type 2, and type 3, and type 1 is an autoimmune disease, which means that it's a disease where your body is actually attacking its own cells. So your body creates and it, it creates and mounts an, an immune response to those islets of Langerhans. So the cells in there, and it actually kills, it attacks and kills those cells that make the insulin. So they're no longer around, and then you get type 1 diabetes. So it means your body can't make insulin. With type 2 diabetes, however, your body can make insulin, but the problem is your body is resistant to the insulin it makes. So therefore, it can't. It has no effect on the sugar that gets into your body. So that's the main difference between those two. And the third type is typically gestational diabetes, which some women get when they're pregnant. And it's usually temporary, but of course, if it's not properly managed and maintained, then it can become permanent. 
even after birth. So we have another question that's sort of around um, nutrition and diabetes. Uh, And Kim was wondering how diabetes affects digestion and absorption of nutrients. That's a really good question. So diabetes, like I mentioned before, can affect many different parts of the body. And so it also particularly affects our nervous system. And so typically, uh, we, we normally hear about it affecting the nerves in our limbs and eventually causing amputation if it's not properly managed. But when it comes to digestion, there's a main nerve co- called the vagus nerve, and that usually controls how our stomach will empty food into our small intestines. And so people who have diabetes, in those people, their vagus nerve may actually be damaged. And for that reason, they usually have issues of their food emptying from their stomach into their small intestines. And then that tends to create other problems within their body and their digestion. And our final question comes from Richard, who asks, is there any new discoveries or data about the success of the Edmonton Protocol? That's another good question and a very specific one. For the Edmonton Protocol, it's been around for a long time, since 1989. But if we think about it, it's not that long when, it, when we're talking about health and, and science and discovery. And so more recently, what has happened over the many years is that there have been over 500 islet transplantations around the world. But if you think about it from 1989 to now, that's not as many as you would probably think uh, would happen. And so far, one of the main improvements to the process is actually the safety in the islet transplantation procedure itself. It's actually become safer over time. The amount of people that are able to get islets and then become independent of insulin is about the same that has been maintained. And then when we look at the number of islet transplantations that have been occurring over time, it's actually decreased over the years. And I'm not entirely sure why. Uh, There are several reasons why um, islet transplantation can be limiting. And and one reason is the fact that um, the organs there's a shortage of organs. So that may be one. And also, two, it may be a procedure that is very difficult to replicate in other parts of the world. So some of the biggest successes has been in Edmonton, so Alberta, Edmonton. And so beyond that, uh, we've seen a decline in the amount of the procedures that have been done around the world. It's really interesting that the Edmonton Protocol happened in 1989, which was just after Wayne Gretzky got traded. <laughs> All right, should we do a segment? Bring it on. What you nerdin' about? What you nerdin' about? So, Krishana, what have you been nerding out about recently? So, I've been nerding out about something called GradWrite Slack. And GradWrite Slack is actually a community that I founded two years ago. And it's a Slack group where a bunch of academic trainees from all over the world has joined. And they come in for accountability and community uh, when they're doing their academic writing. And so from the time I started it to now, we've grown to over 600 people, which to me is amazing. And we've had amazing successes with over 50 people in this time managing to come in and finish writing up their theses and defending or passing their comprehensive exams. And so some of the 
I, I think some of the best times and, and, and the best feedback that I've gotten is that, you know, people would put us in their thesis acknowledgements and they come back and say how amazing the community has been in getting them to the finish line. And so, you know, helping to remove that isolation, giving that camaraderie, as well as giving the accountability has been um, amazing. I love that there's this combination where you're not just going to, you know, get your work done, but you also have a support system that you might not otherwise have access to. Michael, mm-hmm. are there any amazing global groups that you founded lately that you've been nerding out about? Uh, you don't even know what I'm what I'm <laughs> going to say, but maybe you do. So for everyone listening that's been that's known Kaylee and I, we've decided to do this sort of um, obsession swap. So Kaylee has been going through all of Star Trek Next Generation, which is my favorite show of all time. <laughs> and I've also been watching for the first time ever Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I forgot about because it was on Netflix and then it was back. So I got back into it. Season one, episode eight. The episode is called I, Robot, You, Jane. And something really... Something really weird happened as I'm watching it. So in this episode, Willow falls for a uh, a demon that is disguising as sort of like this uh, weird cyber guy that's living in the computer. Now I'm watching this and I'm like, this show came out in, and I looked it up, 1997. And I'm thinking back, like, wait a minute, April 28th, 1997, this episode comes out, which means they probably like wrote it in 96. And I must have lived like a super sheltered life because <laughs> I got email for the first time in 1999. And then I was like, what is what happened? Like, and then I started asking a lot of my friends, when did the internet, you know, start to like come into your consciousness? And let alone like cyber stalking or like, you know, e-dating or things like that. I mean, and I got a range of answers. It was really interesting. I think it largely was because I graduated in 95, which was right before I think a lot of internet stuff happened. And so once I left high school, you know, I just sort of went into a different world. And because I wasn't connected to the internet, I didn't learn anything about the internet. And I was literally like in a weird bubble of non-internet for about like a good five years. So I've been asking a lot of questions uh, of my friends, you know, trying to figure out where everyone's uh, entry point at the internet was. So I love that this has been such an awakening to you about your own history and relationship with, <laughs> with the internet. Well, when was the first time you got the, you started thinking about the internet? I honestly can't remember. Krishana, how about you? Do you remember the first time the internet became a thing for you? I was actually just trying to think about that as you were talking about it. Um, I think maybe 1998 i can't i can't quite put my finger on it i think maybe then so buffy the vampire slayer was ahead of its time then i guess it was ahead of its time in so many things (laughs) but apparently also in access to the internet uh what about you kaylee what have you been nerding out about well if you'll indulge me for a moment i've actually been uh nerding out about one health (laughs) one health systems so uh one health is this idea that your health is not just about you it's also about the health of animals in the environment and also the environment itself. And COVID is actually a really great example of this because the virus that causes COVID-19 has been linked to originating in wild animals. And I've been thinking a lot about this recently because I've been writing a piece about, you know, what can One Health tell us about the the spaces in which we live? And as I was working on this, I I started reading about uh, Nipah virus. And Nipah virus is a really interesting case of how you can have similar One Health systems, but your approaches to them have to be different because they're so complex. So Nipah virus is a virus that is zoonotic. So zoonotic means it's transmissible between animals and people, and it's carried by um, fruit bats. 
And it was actually first discovered in Malaysia in 1998. And in Malaysia, the cases and people were actually linked to agriculture. So there was planting of fruit trees next to pig farms and bats were feeding on the fruit and the viruses shed in the saliva of the bats. And then pigs were eating bat-bitten fruits and potentially got the virus that way. And then from pigs, it spread to people. But there have also been cases of Nipah in Bangladesh. And in Bangladesh, it's a totally different story. It doesn't have it doesn't involve pigs at all. In Bangladesh, uh, you're more likely to get Nipah virus if you have been consuming raw date palm sap. And in that instance, they think maybe what's happening is that the bats are also feeding on that sap. They're contaminating the sap with their saliva and then people get it that way. So same virus, but in Malaysia, you would deal with it, say, by increasing the distance between uh, fruit trees and pigsties. And, and that has happened and it seemed to have had a positive impact. Whereas in Bangladesh, you might try to reduce the amount of date palm consumed by people, or you might try to put up barriers to keep fruit bats from landing and contaminating that uh, date palm sap. And so in anticipation of this episode, I've been thinking a lot about how health systems are so complex and how you have to understand all the pieces around them in order to make informed decisions. And I think that there's that sort of similar to diabetes. It's not just, can I, can I just not drink sugary drinks and not get diabetes? There's actually so many factors that you have to consider. And uh, so that's actually what I've been nerding out about. Wow, that's so interesting. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. Dr. Kashana Sankar, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to learn more about you and your work, uh, where can they go? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was such fun. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Krishana Sankar. That's my handle. Um, I'm also on Instagram at at beyond.the.ivory.tower. <laughs> and so on my Twitter, I also have my website there. So once you find me on Twitter, you can find my website as well. And uh, you can hear more from Nerd and About or more about us at Nerd Night YVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And until next time, in the immortal words of Hal Johnson and Joanne McLeod, keep fit and have fun. Bye.